Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about last night's Game 6 of the World Series. We're going to talk about TikTok evangelism. And then Joanne Brada, Executive Director of Hopeful Beginnings, will join us. You're listening to The Common Game. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. As a reminder, you can find our stuff at all sorts of different places, one of them being on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com, and get our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Really grateful for those of you who do that. Mr. Simpkins, happy hump day. Uh, how are we doing today on this beautiful Wednesday? I am doing fine, Brian. Thank you for asking. <laughs> we have yet to talk about the fact, by the way, that William Vanderblumen yesterday said that when he got into the business world, he understood hated his job. He understood why people called it hump day. I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> Did, did you did you need additional clarification around that? No, that it, just, it made me laugh because he's like, once I figured out I hated my job, I understood why people talked about it that way. <laughs> yeah, just, just getting over the hump, man. Uh, well, last night was the World Series. Did you watch any of Game 6? I think you said you saw some highlights, but uh, you took in some of the baseball last night? Yeah, I was sort of passively paying attention. Um, yeah, I needed, needed, needed some, uh, some one-on-one focus time. With my wife, it had been. I mentioned this on the show. Oh, I think it was sort of like a what? impromptu date night, and it was. Yeah, we we just had a kind of a crazy last week and a half or so. So sure, yeah, sure. Lo- loosely followed it. Anybody who missed the game last night, the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers won their first World Championship since 1988, uh, defeating the Tampa Bay Rays last night in Game Six, three to one. And there was a lot of fascinating baseball strategy, such as Tampa took out their pitcher who was dominating after just like five and two thirds of an inning. Uh, there was some just great strategy in the game. It was a really well played baseball game, and uh, the Dodgers won it three to one. But in a, in a weird way, even winning the World Series got overshadowed by COVID because up until this point, baseball had done a really good job in which they had over, I think it was fifty six days since their last COVID positive in all of baseball. Well, last night they get to Game Six of the World Series, and uh, one of the foundational key members of the Los Angeles Dodgers. His name is Justin Turner, their third baseman. All of a sudden, he's not in the game anymore. Right. And everyone's like, game six? They pulled him for like a rookie? What is going on? And after the game, they celebrate. They go to the studio show and they say, hey, breaking news, Justin Turner got pulled because he tested COVID positive and they found out about it in the seventh inning of game six. Right. And uh, so there's some video of them literally telling him and pulling him out of the game which is fascinating in and of itself. And then everybody feels badly because this guy's been on the Dodgers for 10 years. They finally win their World Series. Well, then as the celebration's going on, out comes Justin Turner from the clubhouse, taking pictures with his teammates, with his wife, uh, mask on, no mask on. And it was just a bit of a surreal, completely 2020 story. Uh, you know, I'm curious what you thought. I'm sure you saw highlights of this and kind of people pontificating about this. What did you think about when you heard about how COVID even entered into the World Series last night? I mean, I was kind of surprised that it hadn't earlier, to be honest. I mean, I feel like if 2020 has done anything to our sense of optimism, it's sort of an always waiting for the other shoe to drop kind yeah. of situation, whether it's small gatherings or it's sports or, you know, what I mean, like I just, I just feel like, and maybe not everyone else is like that. I was sort of waiting with bated breath, like, well, okay, 
When's it gonna? I just assumed that it would. So I guess the fact that it, you know, we didn't really see that till game six to me, to me was honestly kind of surprising. Okay. What's really interesting is uh, baseball's really lucky in some ways that the Dodgers won last night uh, because if they hadn't, game seven would have probably been delayed to who knows when because it was supposed to be tonight. Right. And they would have had to test everybody and figure this out. So I want you to do something really difficult here. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Justin Turner. Uh, and like I said, you've been like the captain of the team, you and Kurt Clayton Kershaw, you've been on the team for 10 years. You finally win. Uh, you've been pulled from the game and kind of isolated in the clubhouse since the seventh inning. You see your team celebrating. Uh, and it basically says that he was told, do not go on the field by major league baseball. And he just kind of said, I'm going. And he walked back out. Nobody stopped him. He took pictures right in the middle of everybody holding the, holding the trophy, uh, put yourself in his shoes. I get it. It's really difficult to do. Uh, what do you think you would have done in that situation? Well, Brian, as an elite athlete, it's actually not that hard for me to <laughs> imagine what that must have been like. I've been in a lot of circumstances exactly like his, so I can draw on really decades of personal experience in answering your question. Um, I, I mean, I'll be honest. It's I, I get, at least to some degree, hi, Pippa, uh, like the – excitement i i mean i certainly understand like that's that's just got to be an overwhelming sense of joy and elation um but for the sake and safety of i mean everybody not just your teammates and the people that you like but like ever, everyone there I have a hard time imagining that I like, didn't have like one hazmat suit somewhere in the space. <laughs> like, he couldn't like, yeah. you know, seventh inning. Like, hey, you got to go. You got to go way back here. Find something. Chuck it on and then run out on the field, you know, like fully right, get, get a thing of saran wrap. Just wrap <laughs> yourself in saran wrap. And uh, there's so many there's just so many things I think. Yeah, he, he probably could have done. But uh, yeah. yeah, so I, again, I, I can't I obviously can't say from any experience that I would have the wherewithal, but I hope that I would say, even though this is just like a, this is a once in a lifetime experience. I I need to be mindful of other people's safety. I was talking to a buddy about this today. And I said to him, I said, I think I really would. This might give a window into where I'm at in all of this. I think I would have rationalized it. I would have said, listen, I just drove a bus on a bus with all these guys. I've been with them for months. Uh, it's not like I've been away from them. I'm going out there. Like I told, I'm not saying what he did was right. I just totally get it. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. This is what you, the pinnacle of your career. And it's been ripped away uh, by this. I, I probably would have rationalized. Now, major league baseball came out today with a statement and they put all of the blame on Justin Turner. And you could see there might be some punishment coming for Justin Turner yeah. uh, for what he did last night. But, you know, anyway, it was just a fascinating thing. University of Wisconsin today, I don't know if you saw this, their upcoming football game after one week, the game this week with Penn, uh, with Nebraska has already been canceled because yeah. they had 12 people, including their head coach, test positive after one week. So just you're always reminded we're in the midst of a pandemic. And uh, well, no matter how much we wish it away, we can't. And uh, I wanted to end this segment with, uh, I, don't, uh, I was going to say happy news, but maybe you don't think this is happy. Here, here's this, just going to give you the headline, Ian. This is hard-hitting news right here as we start the common good today. Class is back in session in the first trailer for Saved by the Bell revival. The old show Saved by the Bell is being revived. Uh, the old characters are now adults. They've got kids in there. A, were you a Saved by the Bell fan? And B, are you excited by the reboot that's coming out? 
Well, Brian, as, as pastors, you know, we're always praying for revival, and maybe we should have been more specific, <laughs> I guess, in our prayers. God was like, done. I hear you guys. Here's your Saved by the Bell revival. Um, <laughs> I, it is interesting knowing a little bit of some of the scandal of some of those original cast members and seeing the ones that aren't yeah. present in uh, in this reboot is super interesting. That's uh, true. I know that. I definitely wasn't like a diehard, but it has enough like of like a nostalgic sense that I think, oh, okay. When all the advertisement, they're like, watch it now on Peacock. And I was like, what? What's Peacock again? Like, I don't, I don't really, that's where I was like, oh, that apparently not, uh, not enough higher ups in like any of the main, the main channels really were interested in the, uh, in the reboot. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's fine. <laughs> Good. I, I think I probably will land like that with you and will never watch an episode of it ever. And so at least not uh, before yeah. you watch Social Dilemma. But Zach, uh, yeah, Zach from the original is now the governor of California. I read in this one. So, you know, there you go. It's uh, it's pretty realistic there, I guess. So yeah. uh, anyway, coming up next, we're going to talk about Sean, Sean Foyt and all of these worship uh, kind of protests slash rallies he's doing. And an interesting article about from Religion News about his theology that's driving this. We're going to talk about the theology of Sean Foyt's worship protests next here on The Coming Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. So if you've been watching the news as of late, uh, you've probably heard the name Sean Foyt, uh, F-E-U-C-H-T. Uh, and he's the guy who's been going around. He's the worship musician uh, who's been leading worship gatherings uh, called... Uh, riots to revivals, kind of some people calling them worship protests. Uh, and there's uh, some people who think these are the greatest things uh, going and other people going, man, this is really problematic. And so at Religion News, uh, they wrote an article entitled, There's a Theology Driving Sean Foyt's Worship Music Projects, Protests, and It's a Popular One. So I want to look at this article before we discuss it. Why don't you, Ian, get us into this article a little bit? Yeah, this is by uh, Adam Perez. The subheading says, what's at stake aren't just political and ideological differences, but complex and deeply rooted theological commitments that have long been forming Christian identities. So that's a mouthful. And I imagine it's, it's uh, again, uh, a bit of what you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, but said much smarter. Here's how the article begins. Worship leading isn't something that often makes the news. The biggest controversy surrounding our work is often whether or not we're playing a congregation member's favorite songs. But Sean Foyt, uh, who has been making headlines since midsummer for his public worship events, uh, he calls it the Let Us Worship Movement or Riots to Revivals. How, by the way, why do they have multiple names going on? Is that uh, a branding nightmare? That's got to, either way. Uh, he's been leading ad hoc worship music concerts in cities across the U.S., most recently on the steps of the courthouse in Nashville, Tennessee, without a permit. Foyt, who lost a bid for California's 3rd Congressional District back in March, has reportedly billed the events as a Christian response to, quote, a spirit of fear and the perceived targeting and silencing of churches through COVID-19-related government ordinances. His efforts have been met with strong praise by some, including Bethel Church in Reading, uh, with which he has been affiliated, and deep ire by others, which is sort of what Brian was just saying. Why has a Pentecostal charismatic worship leader thrown his energies into this political fray? On the one hand, Public worship, music gatherings, concerts, as some prefer, have become somewhat commonplace, at least since Graham Kendrick's Praise March movement in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, we've grown accustomed to worship leaders wielding an increasingly influential level of celebrity within Christian media networks through megachurch platforms and mega conferences like Passion. On the other hand, there is something new and distinct happening here. 
Why is it that Foyt has chosen worship music in particular as the tool with which he rages against what he perceives to be the politically motivated rep uh, repression of Christian worship in America? I'm suggesting here that Foyt makes much more sense when you understand his theology of worship, even if you disagree with how he is wielding it. To, dis uh, to disregard or fail to acknowledge his theology of worship is to risk misunderstanding what he and his attendees are attempting to accomplish. I would maybe add an asterisk that just because, even let's say he's even right about uh, sort of picking apart, dissecting and analyzing Foyt's theology. I don't necessarily know that it's fair to say that that's the same thing that all the attendees are also trying to accomplish. You know, they might just simply be interested in showing up for what they see to be a cool event. But in general, I think this is a really uh, interesting and necessary angle to take to really kind of peek behind the veil. Like why, why this, why now, why in this way? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, thought process of as to also, why is he using worship music and what's this tie into the protest that's going on? Uh, he's got political motivation. Obviously, you, you read earlier that he uh, ran for some political office and didn't win um, and that there's this protest feel to it kind of, you know, we're th th there aren't a lot of masks. Let's just put it that way in these pictures uh, of what's going on. And so I do think it's interesting to go, OK, what's driving behind here? Because uh, it's it's certainly being done to make a point uh, and to try to rally people behind what he believes right now. So what's the what's the theology that he's working from? Yeah, let's read a little bit here. He says, to understand why Foyt views worship music as the appropriate response to perceived religious oppression requires that we all too briefly unpack a theology of worship that enjoys widespread popularity today. I'll simply call it this praise and worship theology, even though it's not monolithic. It emerged out of the latter rain revival movement of the late 1940s and came of age in the 1970s and 80s. Many of the large churches and church-based worship music groups have been directly influenced by it. Bethel, Gateway, Hillsong, the International House of Prayer, and others. Uh, the core of this theology is that praise and worship manifests God's presence. Uh, liturgical historian Lester Ruth has traced this theology back to a Pentecostal preacher named Reg Lazel in 1946, who popularized the idea, idea that God inhabits the praise, inhabits praise based on Psalm 22, 3. Uh, which in King James Version translates, Be, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. By the late 1970s, a rich and diverse biblical theology had developed around this and other teachings as they related to a present day restoration of musical worship modeled after liturgical patterns instituted in the tabernacle of King David. A second intimately related shift also happened. The theological and functional conflation of the terms praise and worship with music when Foyt says worship, he doesn't mean a gathering where Christians pray, read the Bible, and hear a sermon. He means a musical event where Christians sing praises to God. These gatherings are important then because praise and worship, as they interpret Psalm 22, are the normal way Christians encounter God's presence. Depending on your own worship background, this may sound radically new or utterly commonplace. What do you think of that, uh, that theology background given right there? Yeah, I think I think that's a, a fair assessment of uh the perspective that Foyt's coming from? Yeah. It goes on to say, but what does that theology have to do with Foyt's nationwide worship music gatherings? Consider this summary of teaching uh, by Pentecostal charismatic pastor and conference leader Barry Giffing at a large gathering in 1982. He taught that when ancient Israel restored the practice of praise and worship, the nation experienced, quote, spiritual, moral, and military blessing. 
Furthermore, ancient Israel is a type for America and for the Christian church in America. If we, too, restore praise and worship, we can receive these same national blessings today. This theology hinges on the prophecy quoted in Acts 15 that God is restoring David's tabernacle. At one point during his run for Congress, the verse adorned a political ad that featured Foyt standing atop a pile of rubble. He is embedded in the 24-7 prayer tent movement that draws its mission from its theology of tabernacle restoration. Uh, Not coincidentally, his Let Us Worship campaign itinerary also culminates in Washington, D.C. So there's a lot there. There's a lot more to go. What do you think about this theology that says kind of we're calling God's presence and his favor for our country? That does seem to be driving a lot of what he's doing here. Well, it's it's not dissimilar from the kinds of language we can often hear laced throughout any kind of uh, traditional Western evangelical gathering. I think part of the issue, and he later kind of brings us up, is you know some of the sites that are specifically yeah. targeted, you know, of areas of of conflict. You know, some some people call this the the Jehoshaphat principle, the idea that like worshippers go out in front of the army to kind of secure spiritual victory. Um, mm. That's a that's a very real it's a very real uh, theological bent that that a lot of people have. So it's it's less for me about um, some of the w- words behind sounding really alien. I'm like, oh no, that's I've heard worship leaders in my own kind of sphere talk kind of like that. Part of it is like how it's how it seems to be kind of partnered with um, political aim of some degree. Mm-hmm. And some of how it's being done, you know, we mentioned even, you know, the rally in Nashville and D.C. and others. Um, that's that's where it starts to get a little wonky for me. Yeah, I think he's getting at a point. Where, this is Adam Perez, again, theology, uh, doctor of theology candidate at Duke University. Uh, there's a theology behind it. And I think that's why you see some people really excited about this. Other people confused by it. Other people right. bothered by it. Uh, because it becomes theologically driven. He ends the article by saying, what's at stake aren't just political and ideological differences, but complex and deeply rooted theological commitments that have long been forming Christian identities. So a really long article, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, there's parts of it we weren't able to even to touch on. Uh, but I think as as this kind of uh, worship movement gets more and more press, as Sean Foyt goes out and does this, I think it's helpful uh, to give a read to. Well, coming up next, uh, Joanne Brada, who's been on the show before from Hopeful Beginnings, the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings, is going to join us again here next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we're excited to be joined again, I believe, for the third, maybe the fourth time by Joanne Brada. Joanne is the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings. Joanne, thanks for joining us again today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. Why don't you remind our audience again uh, of uh, Hopeful Beginnings? What is Hopeful Beginnings? What is it that you guys do? In Hopeful Beginnings, we work with women with unplanned pregnancies who are having a tough time making a choice of what to do, if they should parent or they should place for adoption. So we are there to provide mentoring, education, and counseling to help them make the best choice for their baby and themselves. We also do postpartum and uh, pregnancy anxiety and depression counseling grief and loss over a pregnancy, and also people that have difficulty adjusting to motherhood. 
one of the things I keep seeing people post about is uh, as we head into winter that we have this COVID stress and anxiety and for some people depression and we're entering into a season of, you know, seasonal affective disorder and all the things that kind of come with that. I'm wondering how, how do you counsel people through dealing with multiple levels of anxiety or reasons for uh, fear or depression? How do you guys navigate some of those waters, especially heading into these winter months? Absolutely. Uh, not only, like you say, the, the winter months and you have the isolation of COVID, those are two prime things that go hand in hand with pregnancy and postpartum depression. So what we do is we first form a relationship with the woman and you and have her expound on what she's feeling and her feelings are normal, but she feels that she's the only one in the whole world going through this. So by kind of normalizing it, it helps with the healing process and we work with them. And if there needs to be an, uh, you know, an MD, a physician um, on board for possible medication, we can connect them with the physicians. Um, the good thing with COVID, believe it or not, is that we have gone all virtual so we can serve women all over the Chicagoland area mm. and they can access free therapy, you know, just through us, which is great. Mm. There's no, um, you know, stipulation. They can go ahead and um, just call us, fill out some paperwork and they can get started. Oh, that's great. Uh, so at, when, when a, when a man or woman loses their child, um, how is it that talking about that grief is helpful for them? Well, years ago, they weren't allowed to talk about it. They would just say kind of, you know, get a stiff upper lip and keep mm -hmm. going on and don't look back. But that's not really embracing how they're feeling and really acknowledging that this is a death of your child. To really talk about that helps you process it through. And once you grieve, then there's light at the end of the tunnel. If you stop the grief process, stop talking about it, which a lot of people do, it's going to come back to you. Mm -hmm. So let's say your second child, God forbid, you have a loss. If you have a third child, it's going to come back in spades mm -hmm. and really cause a lot of pain. So I always say, get into it now and try to relieve the stress and try to grieve through it. And people say, how long does it take to get over it? Everyone's different. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. We actually, we actually just uh, finished a series at our church on mental health and we covered a number of different topics. And really our goal was to like, to do a number of things. One of which was to destigmatize the conversation around getting the help that you need, you know, around counseling mm -hmm. and therapy and, the services that you're providing, I imagine some people listening are thinking, that's exactly what I need. I'm going to call them. I'm going to go to the website. But I imagine there's a whole bunch of other people who actually probably could use the help but don't think they need it or don't think what they're feeling is severe enough or just not quite sure how to assess themselves. Like what's what's some words of wisdom or advice that you give to someone who's not sure if your services are for them, if they actually need it or, or maybe nervous to pick up the phone or go to a website? 
I'll be honest with you. I think most people are nervous about the whole idea of going into counseling. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that your church is looking at that stigma that's there and taking that away. My advice would be if you're feeling depressed at all and it's surrounding uh, maybe the birth of a baby or the loss, et cetera, you're feeling like you just can't get out of bed or you can't sleep, you stop eating or you're eating everything in sight. So we go from one um, you know, side of the spectrum to the other. Give us a call and we are happy to have a session with you over the phone to see if, yeah, would you be appropriate for counseling? And we're happy to do that. Mm. We've talked a lot, especially around the election, about abortion and unplanned pregnancies and, and how these things come about and are, and are best um you know, helped out. And, and so my question is, it's often what you hear people say is I just can't afford another baby. Like financially, mm -hmm. I just can't afford to bring another baby into the world. I'm wondering how you would answer that. And more importantly, if someone out there is feeling that way, what are the services and, and the, and the advice you would give somebody who's feeling that way? Well, this is exactly what we hear frequently is I can't afford to bring another baby into the house. I can't, you know, I, I don't have the money. Um, again, people feel guilty about that. Um, I think the important thing is to talk about it, to look at the pros and cons of parenting and the pros and cons of adoption. Mm -hmm. I think that people don't understand that they can have a relationship with the child if they place for adoption. Mm -hmm. um, and the child has a beautiful story that the mom loved them so much that she wanted to give them a better life. And meanwhile, she gets to see the baby. The baby gets to know who she is. Um, and they have a different relationship. Of course, it's not the day-to-day, -day, the adoptive parents are the adoptive parents. But the birth mom, if you go with the right agency, will always have a place with the adoptive family. And so we promote that. We kind of call it relationship adoption. So basically, again, call and don't hesitate to ask. We deal with all kinds of women who are conflicted about what to do about a pregnancy. So, Joanne, I'm wondering then, could you just let people know what are the different ways that people could reach out to you? I know that, you know, for different personality types, people may feel more comfortable with a phone call or visiting a website or kind of anything in between. And what, what can they expect? What are, what are maybe not only the options available to them, but what does reaching out to you look like? Just go ahead and hit us with all that information. Sure. Okay. Well, first of all, you can go to our web website, which is freecounselingnow.com. Okay. Or you can phone us at 847-870-8181. Um, what you can really expect is to have a conversation with a professional social worker who has been educated in these specialties. If you go to someone general, um, it takes longer through that process, but we know just the target areas that people are looking at and what they need from us. So I say you give us a call at 847-870-8181, or again, our website is um, freecounselingnow.com. And if even if you're not sure or you, you have a friend that needs help, give us a buzz. We are there 24-7. If there's a pregnancy involved where a woman doesn't know what to do, 
We have people on call 24 seven. That other voice here is Joanne Brada. She is the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings. Joanne, we always appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Again, thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hopefully you're having a good Wednesday afternoon. Glad that you're taking some time to join us, either on the radio or sometime in the future on the podcast. Uh, either way, we're glad that you are joining us. That always does sound very science fiction-y, doesn't it? I'm going to start every, every, every time I listen to a podcast and someone asks, what are you doing? I'm going to say something like, I'm living in the future, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and bring that language into my, my everyday life. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I, I would like to know, Ian, what are sure. my holidays today? Do I have, any, we do have holidays today, as I learned yesterday, there's always <laughs> holidays. What are today's holidays? Well, you'll be happy to know, Brian, it is National Chocolate Day. Oh, so close to National S'more Day. That's what I've been waiting for. It's related. Yeah, sorry. I don't, again, I don't know if, I could just Google when it is, but I'm not going to do that. I like kind of this... um going in blind each day with you like a little kid fingers crossed just hoping hoping that it's more day and it's not but uh mm -hmm. that's the only one under the under the weird category it's uh republic day eve in turkey public oh. service holiday in brazil it's uh ochi day in cyprus and v ochi day in greece so there you have it <laughs> okay uh i'm going to make a controversial statement here oh boy uh, i'm not a big fan of chocolate that's what is I don't even know what yeah. to do with you. What is how am I supposed to respond to that? Probably with lots of disappointment and scorn. <laughs> I, I'm I'm driven to intercession. Like I feel like I want to pray for you. Like, I don't Lord heal what's yeah. ever broken in Brian. I don't know who hurt him or what deep sadness resides within him, but uh, that's funny. Not a yeah, fan if you of give chocolate. Okay. If you give me a choice of really sweet, like Skittle, Starburst, or chocolate, I'm going with the really sweet. So I know there's I people okay, out there right on. now. But I don't think it's how you're using the term sweet, I don't think is accurate. <laughs> I think it's accurate. Maybe there's more to it. Uh, but I don't like, and especially dark chocolate. Like the darker the chocolate, I just can't handle it. So. Anyway, we're losing listeners because people are mad at me. When you say can't handle it, what do you mean by that? Like emotionally? It just is too much. <laughs> I just don't like the taste. I don't like the taste. What is the most – all right, well, we're going to turn this on you. What would you say off the top of your head is the most like widely accepted, everybody likes this, but you don't really enjoy it or like it, food? Did anything come to mind? Oh, olives. Yeah, I don't don't like olives. People seem to really like olives. Okay. I don't like olives either, but well, as okay. you're learning, I don't like a lot of things. I was going to say, I could have guessed that. <laughs> I met somebody the other day who was like, I don't really like pizza. And I was like, any pizza? They're like, no, I don't like any pizza. And I just looked at them like, that's the strangest thing I've heard in a long time. Yeah. I heard someone recently say, I don't really, I'm not really into music. And I was like, all music? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, just doesn't do anything for any. me. I'm like, hold on. Every genre, every style? Like, yeah. I don't like it. Like, <laughs> that must have made your head explode in particular. Like, what? <laughs> like, do you happen to know a Brian Fromm? Is that a? <laughs> I like some music. Yes, I for know. sure. That's funny. Uh, anyway, Christianity Today. Here's what we want to talk about. Evangelism. You and I have talked a lot about evangelism over have the year, uh, two years. Yeah, a lot. It feels like often, usually from an Ed Stetzer blog, but usually we end up talking about 
uh, how even growing up, we were told this is how you do evangelism, right? Sure. This is the movement. Really fascinating article uh, written by Rachel Sow at uh, Christianity Today. It's entitled this, Meet the TikTok Generation of televangelists. These young influencers want to hashtag make Jesus viral. So let me just get us into this a little bit. It says Gabe uh, Porat runs from the street toward the camera yelling, wait, wait, don't scroll. If the urgency in his voice causes you to pause and watch this video, you're in for a 60 second blessing. Wearing a pink crew neck sweatshirt with hashtag make Jesus viral emblazoned on the front. He leans deep into the frame. Let me pray with you today, he says earnestly, uh, and then bows his head and closes his eyes. Father God, he prays. Let me just pray for the person on the other end of the phone. Uh, Parat 19 is a student at Kenneth Copeland Bible College who uses the social media app TikTok to share clips of himself preaching short sermons and praying for his audience. TikTok feeds users a constant stream of one minute or less videos via its For You page, making it easy for them to skip the ones that don't catch their attention. While much of TikTok is devoted to less than youth group friendly content, uh, Parat's content rests in a subgenre known as Christian TikTok, or as rapper Kanye West suggested, Jesus talk. (laughs) That makes me laugh. Christian TikTok influencers publish sermonettes, cleaned up versions of trending dance challenges, best Bible study practices, and even tutorials on how to stretch without participating in Hindu elements of yoga. So at the beginning of 2020, TikTok set the record for the most downloaded app. To date, it had it had downloaded over 2 billion times worldwide. And it goes on to say uh, that people like Parat and other Christian TikTok creators hope to leverage this for the sake of of uh, evangelism before you think this is just hokey who's doing this parat's two accounts where he posts videos with captions like it's time for christians to unite uh cater to a combined following of 556,100 users his audience is young uh one study indicated 41 percent of tiktok users are between the ages of 16 to 24 so all right ian when you read this and when you hear this, are you like, yes, that's awesome. Kind of this next people kind of contextualizing next wave of evangelism, or is this hard for you to get your mind around? Is this an effective evangelism tool? What are your thoughts as you hear this article? Hold on. Let me real quick. Google. What is TikTok? <laughs> I'm the 43 year old here on the show, man. <laughs> Listen, I'm allowed to also not know stuff, Brian. That's ageism. And I don't appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I think. You know, I I always, not always, I often think of when I heard Andy Stanley say, when talking about the next generation, you can fight it or you can fund it. And Mm -hmm. I remember hearing that when I had just become a lead pastor the first time and I was 27 and, you know, we had an elder board where everyone was uh, older than I was. And I was feeling, you know, this youthful vigor, obviously, and excitement, but also fear. And, and then realizing then, and and more and more the older that I get, how grateful I am for you know, people in leadership who had been, you know, doing this decades longer, giving me opportunities I probably wasn't ready for. And even letting me try out ideas that to their metrics probably seemed insane, you know. Mm-hmm. And now and I realize, you know, I'm I'm only thirty seven now, but there is certainly a sense of like every every once in a while I see what's sort of the new trend and I have to catch myself from thinking, Oh, really? Come on. <laughs> like I'm already just sort of predisposed to be like a like the curmudgeonly grandpa from up, 
but there there um there is a sense for me though that if there's a message that's being conveyed in a in a format that young people are finding engaging I, i'm definitely for that i think probably what part of my concern lies is when that becomes a replacement for mm. like and again this looks way different in a pandemic but if if that becomes a replacement for like real interpersonal relationships if if the only like quote unquote gospel or evangelism you're experiencing is from a cell phone screen that's probably deficient but that doesn't mean that i don't actually appreciate the methodology and the platform i would hope that those who uh, seem to be succeeding in that platform would would constantly sort of be reminding their viewers back towards like localized mm-hmm. community and 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 family and church and that those kinds of things. And I think the and I, I remember even you know the first time I watched a Matt Chandler sermon on YouTube, the the video before that was hey, saying, "Hey, we're so glad that you're here, but this is in no way a replacement of like being invested in your own local body." And I was thinking, right. "That's right." Oh, what a good what a good thing to say at the onset. Like, "Hey, we're glad that you're here, and and we hope this content blesses you, but this doesn't replace you know the hard work of like real relationships." So I guess that's sort of my not a full-fledged concern, but like, yeah, you hope to see some of that balance, I guess. Yeah, the numbers of this are just crazy. Uh, my one concern, I would say, uh, kind of echoing a little bit, piggybacking off what you said there, is I just know a lot of these, as you read it, it's 19 years old, 17 years old, and and certainly 19-year-old, 17-year-old, they've got things to say. I just know at 19 years old, uh, I was not ready to carry that burden yeah, uh, right. of, of sure. that. And so hopefully there's people coming in, you know, there's uh there's good mentoring there's good kind of oversight going on but on the same sense like you said he he kind of likened it this 19 year old going i'm inspired by the billy graham crusades and that's kind of what i'm doing but on tiktok here you're like well uh kind of doing something uh for the kingdom so hopefully at 19 there's some oversight or some uh some kind of good leadership with him or people over him but other than that man you want to cheer these young young people on see now i sound like the 43 year old these young people (laughs) And, uh, and keep going. So we'd love to know what you think. We got this article up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next hour, we're going to have uh, some discussions, but more so we want you to stick around and hear Eugene Cho, uh, who's going to be on here to talk about his new book. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, should pastors endorse political candidates? And then Eugene Cho, the author of Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, is going to join us. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us. Coming up later this hour, I can't encourage you enough to be sure to join us as we talk to Eugene Cho, uh, an author of a new book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Ian, I've been uh, looking forward to this interview all week since we learned that he's coming on. Uh, you pretty excited for this one coming up? Yeah, I don't know if uh, people know enough about him, but right. he's he's just a really fascinating character and spent a bunch of time you know, as a pastor and now the work that he's doing. He's got, I think, a couple of things that he's working on and a part of and leading. Um, so, yeah, that's that. I have no doubt that's going to be just a fantastic interview. Yeah. And his book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, a Christian guides, a Christian's guide to engaging politics. You and I, by nature of doing the show, get a lot of books sent our way and we get to talk to authors. Uh, this one I started le- running through and reading and I couldn't put it down. It was that mm-hmm. good. It's so timely. So anyway, uh, stay with us. He's going to be at about 520. 
Uh, Eugene is going to be joining us, and we're looking forward to that. But at Christianity Today, today, uh, an article mm-hmm. was there uh, entitled this, More Pastors Endorse Political Candidates in 2020. Uh, but very few do so from the pulpits. So let me get us into this with Lifeway Research. Those of you who listen to this show with any regularity, you know that Ian and I are both pastors. Uh, and so this, uh, especially as we walk our way up to this election, I think is very interesting. And I'm very interested to know what Ian thinks about this. So it says, <laughs> few pastors make political endorsements from the pulpit, but a growing number publicly back candidates when they step away from their church role. Among U.S. Protestants, this is Lifeway Research, 1% say that they publicly endorsed a candidate for public office during a church service this year, while 98% have not. Those numbers are unchanged from 2016. Now, around a third of pastors, 32%, say they have personally endorsed political candidates this year outside of their church role. That marks a 10% jump from 2016 when 22% of Protestant pastors made an endorsement. While the percentage of pastors endorsing politicians has increased, most still avoid publicly backing specific candidates even apart. 65% say they have not endorsed a politician. Three quarters said the same in 2016. Uh, Scott McConnell, executive director of Lifeway Research, said pastors are more decided on who they're voting for in 2020. So it's not surprising that more pastors have shared their opinions with others personally. The candidates endorsed by pastors may be local, state or national, but those who do so in an official church capacity are a rare exception. So Ian, a couple different statistics here, and I'll just start with this question. Do either or any of these statistics surprise you at all? Mm -mm. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, not really. Do they surprise you? I, I am surprised. I think that there's been a 10% jump. So the the whole pulpit one doesn't surprise me. Although 1% sounds a little low, but all pastors <laughs> I know are like, yeah, no, I'm not going to say it from the front. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I am surprised that it's grown so much. Uh, and this might speak more to my personality, to be honest with you. Um, uh, I'm not one who's going to get on Facebook or get up in a in a gathering, not a not a Sunday morning gathering and say, here's who I'm publicly. Let me state who I'm voting for. Sure. Um, I tend to try to travel a more middle road with people. Uh, sometimes I think that's out of wisdom. Sometimes I think that's out of fear. Uh, but I, knowing that there's people on both sides of the aisle at my church, uh, I tend to be one of the people who isn't going to say this is who I'm voting for. Um, and so a 10% jump in a, in a, in a poll like this is pretty substantial. That's not a small number. And so yeah. I do think I, I am surprised by that. Now I'm curious, uh, I've never seen you say, this is who I'm voting for. Uh, yeah. but you are much more out there on social media and other places than I am kind of sharing opinions and sharing your thoughts on things you're willing to, uh, kind of. Uh, and I respect this about you. You're willing to get into the fire probably more than I'm willing to. So uh, with that in mind, um, what do you think about 32%? Does that number even sound low to you? And I guess I would ask you this. Would you ever publicly say uh, on your Facebook feed or in a group setting, this is who I'm voting for? No, no, I I, I don't think that is a, a responsible use of the office and role of pastor. And there's an endless list of reasons for that. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of social media. There, there's certainly been times where I, I've weighed in and probably shouldn't have. You know, sometimes <laughs> it's like a willingness to, what was the term you used? Kind of 
jump wade into the fire. The fire. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, but there's certainly other times where, in hindsight, like I, I should have kept my mouth shut there. That wasn't helpful. But I, I do try, and it's, it seems like this is what a lot of people are doing. Even to the point where you know we referenced the John Piper article. Um, there's no specific names in there. You know, it feels like a lot of people are kind of doing that dance a little bit. One of the other statistics that I find interesting, it says uh, 29% of American adults say they're fine with churches making public endorsements of politicians. Mm-hmm. 30%. That's that's um, much higher than I, I would have guessed. My assumption is there are certain pastors, certain leaders who feel really comfortable, may, maybe even, you know, called to publicly endorse, you know, using their platform. I guess my my assumption was that most people who were like not okay with that or maybe like a little annoyed by that. The fact that like close to 30% are like, no, yeah, that's what I want. I, I want my pastor and our leaders to, to, to be really succinct, to be really explicitly clear about who they're voting for, because that I find that to be helpful. That, that legitimately surprises me. I think, uh, you, you know, I've said earlier that I'm not going to publicly endorse anybody, but I, you said something really interesting that might have caught people's ear. You said there's a myriad of reasons why you think uh, your personal opinion is that somebody with the office of pastor shouldn't do that. Uh, I'm wondering what maybe one or two of those reasons might be for you. Yeah, one of mine, I mean, this this comes from a a philosophy of teaching that isn't limited just to the church either. But I, I think, and maybe you would agree, I think some of the best teachers that I, I've had in my life didn't tell me what to think, but rather how to think. And I think uh, good preaching can often be the same way. That does, that's not to say that there aren't certain times um, that the responsibility of a pastor, a shepherd, a teacher has to simply say, hey, hey, as best I can tell, this is what the Bible says, or this is what it means you know, to follow Jesus. But it feels like um, a lot of that, a lot of the nuance of just our like common life together is helping people, and you said this even at like our, you know, our pitch video two years ago, like help people think Christianly mm-hmm. and to recognize and maybe even honor the fact that there are dedicated, committed, sold out Christ followers on both sides of almost every voting issue. Mm-hmm. And to simply say, and again, this is different than just offering an endorsement recommendation, but we've heard a number of Christian leaders say, oh, you cannot be a Christian and vote this way or that way. We've seen that on both sides. And to me, not only is that just like not helpful, I think it's really discrediting and dishonoring mm-hmm. to like the big C church and the family of God that has, you know, for centuries had to learn how do we actually still see each other's brothers and sisters, even though we really disagree on this or that issue. I think for pastors to start making these like public endorsements starts to fracture some of that. Um, some of that relationship. And I think that, I think that can be really problematic. All that I have to add to that is I couldn't agree more. (laughs) That was well put, but you you out there might disagree with us. We're going to put this up in our Facebook feed. Like we always do. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us maybe you're a pastor out there. We would love to hear from you. If you think that we are uh, wrong about this, you could do that at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. Well, coming up next, Eugene Cho, author of the new book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. You're not going to want to miss this interview with Eugene coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined right now uh, by author and pastor Eugene Cho, the author of a new book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Brian, Ian, thank you again so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you. It's really the pleasure is all ours. Why don't you introduce yourself before we jump into the book? Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. So again, my name is Eugene. I'm joining you from Seattle, Washington, uh, married to my wife for about 24 years. We have three children. And yes, I'm a former pastor. Uh, and right now I run two organizations. One is called One Day's Wages in Seattle. It's a humanitarian grassroots organization to end extreme global poverty. And I just began a new role as president and CEO of a Christian advocacy organization in DC called Bread for the World, where we're seeking to urge our lawmakers to help end hunger in this nation and around the world. Mm. I love that. Eugene, Brian and I are both actually pastors first, and then we do this radio show on the side. And one of the things that we'll often kind of hear is pushback whenever we delve into something that someone deems political Often the, the feedback is, you guys are pastors. Why don't you just talk about spiritual things? Why, why are you talking about political things? I've been dying to ask you specifically that question. What do you, what do you say to people who legitimately feel that way? Yeah. Well, first of all, I thought we were talking about faith and puppies and instead of faith and politics. Uh, that's why I joined the call. Uh, well, I guess we have to answer that question. I think it's a good question. And I think when people are saying that they have some reticence about politics, I think what they actually mean is that they're concerned about partisanship, about partisan yeah. politics. When pastors right. or leaders pledge allegiance to a particular party or a politician uh, and have basically blinders on. And I, I would also add my displeasure and concern when any Christian pledges allegiance to a party or to a politician. Now, having mm -hmm. said that, if you take a step back, politics if you look at any basic dictionary, it's simply the art of government and any healthy society, it needs healthy politics. A, health, a healthy church needs healthy politics. A healthy organization needs healthy governance. Now, the other thing that I'll say is I'm actually more concerned about pastors who are unwilling to engage these topics, because if we choose not to, we're actually abdicating the responsibility of discipleship to other organizations or other mm -hmm. voices. And I think people need to understand people are being formed and discipled about their lens and their perspective on politics, but it's usually not through the framework of pastoral leadership, of biblical theology, of the scriptures. So I actually think it's important for pastors, however imperfectly, but prayerfully, wisely, and with lots of discernment, engage this topic. Mm. Mm. Uh, Ian and I talk a lot uh, on this show about just what we see going on in the church and around us, uh, around politics, obviously with the election coming up. I'm just curious, how do you see politics right now playing out among Christians in our country? Well, let me pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> if there's a way that you could incorporate some thunder and lightning behind. I mean, let's, let's just be really honest and candid. I, I don't recall anything as intense as what we're experiencing right now. Hmm. Uh, I just turned 50 and, and I'm not necessarily someone who cares a lot about politics. 
Um, I, I take my discipleship very seriously as a follower of Jesus. And I think part of what it means to be a disciple is to seek to be a good citizen here on earth. And so in the, you know, the 25 or 30 or so years where I've had the ability to vote, I don't recall anything so intense as what we're experiencing right now. So if I'm being very frank and candid, there are moments where I feel exhausted. There are times I feel cynical. There are times I feel discouraged. But in the midst of all of these things, I have to remind myself again that when I speak about God's sovereignty, it's not some sort of a theological exercise or jargon or nebulous belief that I have. I believe that God is sovereign, that Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit is still at work. And in a fallen, imperfect world, my call as a follower of Jesus Mm. is to, as prayerfully and humbly as I can, seek to be light and salt. And that means, in part, to engage the political process. And the reason why I say that is because I do believe that government, that home, and church are the three main institutions that God's created in this world. And politics shapes policies that impact people. And oftentimes it involves people that are oftentimes marginalized or forgotten. I'm not suggesting that politics is the most important thing or that it is the answer to all things, because that's clearly not true, but it is important. And so as a follower of Jesus, I'm choosing to engage. You know, I, I think of the uh, the MLK quote where he says, sure, laws can't change a human heart, but they can keep them from lynching me. And like this idea that I often hear Christians say like, well, that's a sin issue. We need to just simply focus on on heart issues and not get tied into that. I know you also write about the kingdom of God, which selfishly, like we're in the middle of preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm I'm steeped in trying to better understand kingdom of God language and what does it mean to to really pledge allegiance to King Jesus and still engage politically. Can you speak a little bit more to how you see the kingdom of God factoring into these conversations? Yeah, there's a theologian that's been very helpful to me, and I suspect that Christians have heard this phrase, but we don't quite know that it should be attributed to this particular theologian. His name was Gerhardus Voss, and he introduced to us explaining the kingdom of God to a phrase called the kingdom already and not yet, the kingdom here and not yet. So as to suggest that we believe, even though this isn't Resurrection Easter Sunday this upcoming week, we believe the tomb is empty. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is alive. And so he ushers in the kingdom of God, which which can be uh, introduced as the, the, the reign of God, the flourishing of God. But at the same time, we acknowledge that we're in this in between space where Christ one day will return to restore all things. So in other words, we can have great comfort and great strength in that truth, but we're also acknowledging that we're living in a space of tension. And so in this space of tension, we are, as one person says, resurrection people still living in a broken Friday or silent Saturday world. Yeah. Uh, Mm. And yet at the same time, we're called to introduce and to keep Uh, seeking and embodying the kingdom of God. I believe in the New Testament, this kingdom of God, this phrase, it's introduced to us 68 times just in the the New Testament. And so it's incredibly important. And it's another reminder to us that while we are citizens here on this earth, 
that there's nothing wrong with us being patriotic, to be proud. I'm a proud, naturalized American citizen. But our ultimate allegiance has to be to the kingdom of God. And this kingdom isn't some nebulous place. The kingdom of God has a king, Mm -hmm. and his name is Jesus. And so we're called to pledge allegiance to Jesus. One last thing that I'll just say about this. I think my concern is that if we're not careful, our politics shapes our theology rather than our theology shaping our politics. That nuance mm-hmm. is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, that is so important. I want to dive into that. How would somebody know if they're getting that, getting that backwards? How would I know if my politics are shaping my theology rather than the other way around? Wow, that's a long series, uh, a, po- a series of podcasts and a series of sermons. And, uh, but I think it's an important question. So a couple things that I would say. Uh, historically speaking, you know, when uh, Nazism emerged into power, it's very sobering and very, very, very uh, scary to consider that historians believe that about 92% of that nation were professing Christians, 92%. Mm. The youth group movement in Germany were very, very monumental in helping Hitler rise into power. I mean, every single one of us, I don't care what your political inclination is, when you hear that kind of sobering statistic, it should stop every single one of us dead on our tracks. Last year, I led a small group of pastors Uh, to a trip to Rwanda to learn, to listen Mm. about reconciliation, about justice, about truth-telling, about confession. But we were there in part to mark the 25th anniversary of the horrific Rwandan genocide, where approximately 1 million Rwandans, including 800 Tutsi minority people, were slaughtered during that genocide, about 100 days after Resurrection Sunday. And what's sobering, again, is the fact that about 90% of that nation then were professing Christians. So here's the question that I often pose to myself and others. Are we really following Jesus or are we more in love with the idea of following Jesus? One, I think, is cultural Christianity, where we're more enamored about certain power or privileges or platform or Are we really engaged as followers, as disciples to the scandalous, subversive, countercultural kingdom of God led by this person named Jesus Christ? And again, I'm saying this not with any particular bent. I think this should speak and challenge every single one of us. Hmm. We've seen so much uh, over the last few months in particular of pastors signing various different documents and pledges and, you know, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And then we're seeing the responses. And then John Piper writes an article and then everyone writes a response to that. And just today, Karen Swallow Pryor essentially said, I don't think I in good conscience uh, can vote for either. I'd love to know, how do you help people navigate those waters? Some are, some are thinking, well, to not vote at all uh, is completely irresponsible. Others are saying, I can't in good conscience as a Christ follower vote for either. Like, how do you, how do you kind of parse some of those discussions? Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I, I really haven't been following all the things happening on the interweb. Sometimes <laughs> I think you have to take a little break <laughs> and spend yes. some time praying and discerning. So this is what I do. Um, and I'm not trying to sound holier than thou, but one of my routines and rhythms during election season 
is that I try to read the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the yes. Beatitudes. I read it over again and again for a couple of weeks leading up to the election season. I try to again, it helps me again focus on who Jesus is, the kingdom of God. And the last thing that I'll say, or the second thing that I'll say is going back to this idea about the kingdom already and not yet. If we're not yeah. feeling tension, then something is off with us. We should feel tension. We should feel a sense of confliction. We should feel a sense of, gosh, how do I go about this particular process? So if that's anyone that's listening right now, I would say join the club. All of us, I think, are in this space. As for others who are giving some guidance and giving people a glimpse, I think they're trying as best as they can give some sort of guidance and encouragement to others. And and, and this is what I experienced when I became a Christian about 30 years ago. I was told back then that if you're a good Christian, you have to vote Republican. Mm -hmm. uh, living in Seattle, I hear the absolute opposite. If you're a good Christian that's really mm -hmm. justice-minded, you have to vote uh, the opposite. You have to vote Democratic. And when we're talking about elections, we shouldn't be so enamored by the presidential election. I think our local elections, our state elections, all of it really, really matters. And so I would encourage yeah. people to really consider uh, to pray, to actually vote, because I do think it's an important privilege that we should exercise in our responsibility. And then the last thing that I'll just say is this, we should never reduce our civic responsibility to one vote every mm. four years. Mm, right. And if that's what we do, then if I can be a little candid and brash, I think we're actually part of the problem. We need to embody our faith every single day. We need to know what it means to love our neighbors. Somebody recently asked me, you know, how do you love your neighbors during a tense election season uh, that might disagree with you? And I answered it as, as, as candidly as I can. I said, the problem is we're asking that question during an election season where it's very, right. very tense. We should be having that conversation outside the election. It should have began several years ago. And the question I want to ask is, are we still committed to that question the day after the election results, even if your particular candidate isn't elected to the uh, position that you want that person to be elected to? Oh, that's good. That's good. I want to talk real fast specifically about your book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Uh, fabulous title, by the way. And uh, there's something specific in the book as I was reading it that just kind of blew me away. Could you tell us about the idea of the Make Dinner Great Again movement? I'd never heard of this. And as I read it, I was like, that is brilliant. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up. It's not my idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a movement called MADA, which stands for Make America Dinner Again. And during the last presidential election, these two Asian-American women, were, they were distraught by the election results. And they began to ask themselves, gosh, we need to process this. We want to ask uh, people within our social circles that voted for Trump. And to their surprise, they realized, and they were very honest with themselves, they realized that they didn't know anyone that voted for Trump. And directly or indirectly, we all tend to create our own echo chambers. And we're basically speaking to ourselves and listening to others who are simply affirming what we already believe. It kind of leads to an increasingly polarized society and nation. And so they had this idea of putting out on social media uh, their predicament and really wanting to have a safe, honest, candid conversation, invited people to bring a dish, and people responded. And mm. it 
led to this movement called Make America Dinner Again. And uh, I joined my local Seattle branch. Uh, it was uh, at times uncomfortable and challenging. Uh, we talked about immigration, gun control. We talked mm -hmm. about anything and everything under the sun. And we didn't fix or solve everything. But I think it was a reminder to me that there are those who disagree with me on particular views that they're not Beelzebub. Uh, they're not the demon. They're, they're not people that are horrendous, that are trying mm -hmm. to destroy our nation or our terrorists or whatever it might be that sometimes gets thrown around in a fear-mongering culture. But it also taught me to also be more human. And I think this whole idea about following Jesus, one of the two greatest commandments is to be a good neighbor. And it's important to remind ourselves, you cannot be a good neighbor if you don't know your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And you can't know your neighbor if you're not willing to either A, share your story, and B, listen to your neighbors as well. Jesus, as you know, performs just incredible supernatural miracles. And the part about his public ministry that most fascinates me and challenges me is that he chooses to have conversations and meals with people that he was not supposed to be seen with, whether right. it's the Samaritan woman at the well, whether it's the woman who's suffering from internal bleeding or the Samaritan leper who chooses to come back. Or I think one of the craziest conversations is when he chooses to invite himself to dine and to speak with Zacchaeus. I can't think of someone who would be more hated in that Jewish culture than a tax collector who chooses to swindle his own people and work for the other villainous political empire. And yet right. Jesus chooses to do this. This isn't license for us to be soft about some of the views or convictions that we have, but let's not abandon this commitment to be a good neighbor, even yeah. during this crazy political season. Yeah, that's good. The book is Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. I just finished it. I can't uh, encourage you out there enough to go get the book. Give it a read, especially in this season that we're in. The author of that mm -hmm. book is Eugene Cho. He's been very gracious with his time. Eugene, thank you so much. We'll have you on again sometime. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, All right. Man. Thank you and blessings, everyone. Absolutely. Well, you're listening you to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And I got to tell you, after that interview with Eugene Cho, uh, I, I think we should have just ended the show with that. <laughs> just should have. This been might be the most complimentary of a guest you've ever been. He was so good. You and I were texting during it as I'm just like... He's phenomenal. <laughs> I wasn't texting. I was listening to the words he was saying. I was multitasking. Focused. Multitasking. <laughs> so sure. We've heard, we've heard your multitasking. <laughs> Excuse me. Who's here? <laughs> uh, wanted to end the show talking a little bit of encouragement around discipleship and evangelism. Uh, and found this article at Lifeway. Uh, it's part of his book. It's from his book by J.D. Greer. And the, uh, the article is just entitled this, Be the Them. So the them is in quotes, just be the them. Why don't you read some of this for us? Get us into it, because I think J.D. Greer gets into some interesting stuff here. And I wanted to clarify, too, we, we wanted to end with just a little bit of encouragement, not a lot of encouragement. No, we, we want you to ration for more. <laughs> right, we got to ration this encouragement. That's, that's a little Stockholm-y, isn't it, Brian? Like we just can't. A, 
We can't give it all to you on a Wednesday. (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. All right. Be the them by J.D. Greer. Let me uh, let me read how it begins. From the time I was a child, the miracle of Jesus that probably most captivated my imagination was his feeding of the 5000, which uh, interestingly is the one that uh, Dallas Jenkins always brings up Uh, with only five loaves and two fish. Something like a Hebrew happy meal. Jesus fed over 5000 hungry men. There are multiple things we can learn about ministry from that miracle. But one of the most important is this. God has already placed in the hands of his church everything necessary to complete the Great Commission. Just as the little boy uh, had only to open up his hands and offer up his five loaves and two fish, so have we only to offer up our lives into his hands to see the lost multitudes fed to abundance. The book of Acts demonstrates this over and over again. God uses ordinary people as the tip of the gospel spear. Throughout the book of Acts, ordinary people outpace even the apostles in gospel expansion. The first time the gospel leaves the borders of Jerusalem, it is not in the mouths of the apostles, but ordinary people. Jesus had clearly told his disciples he wanted his gospel preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But by Acts 7, the gospel seems stuck in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters of Acts contains not one story of anyone leaving Jerusalem with the gospel. That all changes with the story of Stephen. Stephen, a, quote, ordinary believer, not an apostle, provides such humble, sacrificial service to widows in his community that he is brought before the Sanhedrin to explain what he's doing. His bold testimony to Christ starts a riot, and believers are driven out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. As they go, they carry the gospel with them. That's Acts 8. Luke, the writer of Acts goes out of his way to point out that uh, point out that of those who left preaching the word, not a single apostle was involved. Acts 8, uh, verse 1 and 4 says, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria, and those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. God accomplished through the preaching of a layman what the apostles had been unable to do in seven chapters. I would add like, Mic drop emoji. That's a pretty. That's a <laughs> pretty fascinating. I've taught on the Book of Acts multiple times. I don't know that I've ever actually made this specific point with these specific texts. I I love where he's going with this. Can I tell you the? Ex- I had that exact same thought. Sometimes <laughs> you read things and you're like, I've never seen that. When he says, and if you see the article on our Facebook page, you'll see he italicized the words except the apostles. Uh, yeah. I've never noticed that. Like, yeah, we know they were scattered and all this stuff. And we talk about Stephen, you know, he served tables and this, that. But the fact that it explicitly says in Acts 8 there that all except the apostles were scattered and they went about preaching the word. I think that's that's a little really powerful thing that in all my Bible training, I've never noticed. He goes on, he says, later in that same chapter, we see the first international mission trip taken by Philip, another one of these laymen. The Spirit of God guides him to a desert road junction where he meets an Ethiopian government official whom he leads to Christ and baptizes. According to the church father, uh, uh, I always say his name wrong, Arrhenius, um, I think it's actually, I've, I've been challenged on this, by the way. How do you pronounce that? Uh, I think you're about to challenge me, but I always say it Arrhenius as well. I think it's Irenaeus. I think that's actually okay. correct. I think that's why I always get caught up. Um, <laughs> Too many according vowels to, in a row there. According to that guy, <laughs> this Ethiopian eunuch returned to sub-Saharan Africa, Africa uh, as its first gospel emissary. One layman, Philip, obedient to the scripture, uh, obedient to the spirit, was able to get the gospel farther around the world than had all the apostles up to that point. This pattern of, quote, anonymous Christians spreading the gospel continues throughout Acts as Steve Neal wrote uh, write notes in his classic history of Christian missions, nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneers 
who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by apostles. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome. They certainly did not found it. This makes me think of a, a quote from Eugene Peterson that I keep coming back to. Um, I think it's because I'm rereading the pastor. I think that's where I read it. He said, the pastor is at his best when his work goes unnoticed. And that's always just in different seasons of my life. I've always found that convicting, especially in this age of like, make a name for yourself. And like you were saying even earlier, uh, in, engage on social media and grow your church or, you know, none of those things are evil, obviously. But there seems to be in a lot of ways, in a lot of circles, uh, a strong effort away from anonymity. And, yeah. and part of what Greer's saying here is like, well, it seems like the foundation of the church was almost like built on anonymity and how counter that runs to so many of our instincts. Oh, absolutely. And I also think what he's getting at here is how many of us pastors, but also just to use his title, lay people, uh, feel like I could never do anything. God could never use me to do any. I'm too ordinary to use his words here. I'm too, uh, he uses, like you said, that mega church pastor with a huge following and a big stage. And sure, he uses those people. Or Billy Graham, you know, we, we kind of put all these people up there. But you know what, little old me, I'm just going to go to church and I, and there's no mission for me to undertake. There's nothing. And I really think Greer does a masterful job here at saying that is just not the story of the book of Acts. And I think that's a, a good reminder. I, I wonder if, if someone's pushback might be, well, yeah, I can totally celebrate that that's how God did it then. But he wants to do it through celebrity pastors now. Like, what would you, what would you say to the person that thinks like, yeah, I totally agree with your exegesis of that text, yep. but that was a different time, and much like you know, even our our TikTok segment, God is is using new methods, new methodologies nowadays. What do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, I would ultimately say it's the same Holy Spirit at work in and oh, through snap. people. Snap, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that does God use celebrity pastors? Yes, I hope so, uh, but. Uh, no, I think we just see anecdotally all around us, just ordinary people uh, loving their neighbors, loving their family, being obedient to the word, speaking the truths of the gospel, that that's how lives are changed. I love what Greer does here. It's another spot that I haven't even noticed. He goes to Acts chapter 11 and he says, there's a pastor, he says, he only says that the Lord's hand was with them. Uh, and then he uses this word them. He said, as my friend Vance Pittman says, that is Luke's way of saying a bunch of dudes whose names I won't mention because you wouldn't recognize them and won't hear anything about them anyway. They are the kinds of people who get listed in the credits of a movie as bystander number three. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) He says it was Apollos, a layman, another them who carried the gospel to Ephesus. And Greer goes on to say, thank God for them. Throughout Christian history, the gospel has nearly always spread and stuck because ordinary people like you carried the gospel wherever they went. Ordinary people are the tip of the gospel spear. Again, the question is no longer if you are called to leverage your life for the Great Commission, only where and how. However God gifted you, he gifted you with the Great Commission in mind. And he ends this way. Maybe nobody in Christianity knows your name but you can be part of the most powerful and effective mission force ever established team them. That's good, man. man. When I read that, I said, I, not only do like, I want my people of my church to know that, but as I read that, I'm like, I needed to hear that today. <laughs> like yeah, totally, I, totally. I needed to hear that today. And so again, hopefully that's an encouragement for those of you out there going, ah, am I too ordinary to matter, to matter in the kingdom of God? And hopefully these words uh, that J.D. Greer gave to us today uh, remind us that, no, you're not. 
you're important and reminds us how it is the gospel has spread from the beginning. So hopefully that's encouraging for you as we go about the rest of our day today. Well, if you missed any of our show today, uh, head on over to the podcast. You can get your podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Again, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, We're glad that you joined us today. Uh, We will be back at it from 4 until 6 tomorrow. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.